0: Table Scraps, the Internet exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio. And thank you for those listening on SkypeCast. In case you haven't heard what that is, Skypecast is a place where you can download the internet voiceover IP program Skype and then listen to our, our recording. So just click on over to our Skypecast page, all the details there, and then you can actually call in with your comments or questions as we record Table Talk Radio. With me today is Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolfmiller, how are you doing? Good morning, Evan. I'm fine, thank you. Good. Um, I have a question for you. Have you ever been called a Pharisee? Uh, yeah, I think I have a couple times. It's a good. Why do you ask, Evan? Well, that is the topic of today on Table Scratch. We're talking about uh, the Pharisee and and what did it, what it means really to be called a Pharisee. And joining us for that conversation is Pastor Todd Wilkin, host of the the radio program Issues, Etc. And he's authored an article in the show's publication, Playing the Pharisee Card. Pastor Wilkin, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much, Evan and Brian. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, First, uh, if we may ask you, uh, how the, uh, the the progress of the new Issues, Etc.
1: Um, it is coming along very well. Um, it has uh, been a lot of hard work over the last almost, I think, Three months now uh, since the original show was canceled. Um, almost since uh, that day, probably a week and a half um, after the old issues, etc., ended, uh, Jeff and I have been working on uh, putting a new show together. It started in a very rudimentary form, and then uh, over about the first month, we were able to uh, start to see things come together so that we could bring back the show uh, almost in its full form. So when we debut on June 30th, uh, we're going to be able to offer an hour on a local St. Louis radio station, KSIV, uh, from 4 to 5 and during drive time every weekday. And around that, uh, starting at 3 central time, running through 5, we also have live interne- Internet uh, streaming. Uh, also for download and podcasting, and uh, pretty much pick up the show where it left off.
2: That, that's fantastic. June
0: 30th. That's uh, I hadn't heard that start date yet.
1: Yep. Two weeks from yesterday, which makes me a little nervous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all anxiously been awaiting, and uh, for more information, you can visit uh, piratechristianradio.com. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Pirate Christian Radio is a uh, web radio service or web radio station that is going to be helping us to get our web signal out for those two hours from 3 to 5 central on weekdays. And uh, the uh, there's been some confusion over the whole pirate aspect of that. I think people have been expecting Jeff and I to show up uh, carrying scabbards with eye patches and things like that. <laughs> there's really nothing more to it than uh, what people who are familiar with radio recognize immediately, that pirate radio is often considered to be radio that operates – uh, somewhere outside the, the boundaries, outside the lines, and uh, Pirate Christian Radio is that web service that's going to let us uh, bring our signal uh, back to the web in the form of live streaming and on demand and podcasting.
0: Very good. Well, let's uh, begin talking about your your article then, uh, playing the Pharisee card. And uh, first of all, what do you mean by the Pharisee card?
1: Well, obviously, it's a reference to playing cards, and uh, if you've ever played almost any card game. For me it would be something like poker. There are cards that people hold in their hands that uh, they play that are that are supposed to uh end the game. For instance, uh, if you're just playing regular old poker, everybody's gonna be holding five cards and uh and as as you as you lay down your cards uh well not regular old poker, let's do uh Texas Hold'em, everybody's got a couple cards in their hands, and everyone sees the hand out there on the table, everyone's wondering, what are these cards they're holding in their hands? The game usually ends when someone lays down the card that trumps everybody else, or that is higher than everyone else's card in its value. And in the church, among Christians, this is really unique to Christians, unbelievers don't play the Pharisee card very often. Among Christians, there is this Pharisee card that people keep in their hand, and when they play it, it's usually intended to discredit the person with whom they're talking or arguing or debating by by, by calling them a Pharisee, by insinuating that they're a Pharisee. The problem with the Pharisee card among Christians is that It's a fundamental misunderstanding of who the Pharisees were, and it's also a cheap trick that Christians play on each other. Usually we think of the Pharisees, here's the fundamental misunderstanding, we think of the Pharisees as this group of men with long black beards and mustaches that they twist maniacally, all very evil men, all very insincere all putting on a front, a religious front for the world to see, all bent upon uh, bringing Jesus down because Jesus was full of love and compassion and mercy. He was just too loving for them. And Jesus was a rule breaker. Jesus uh, painted outside the lines and he pushed the edge of the envelope. But these maniacal Pharisees, they wanted to keep everyone inside the lines and they wanted to keep everyone believing their doctrine, their teachings. In a nutshell, we we misunderstand who the Pharisees were as people who were were concerned with doctrinal purity, had no love for people, especially for the lost, and uh, hated any kind of innovation. What's at the heart of this misunderstanding of the Pharisees is really a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. That Jesus was somehow this guy, always coloring outside the box, always pushing the edge of the envelope, always introducing new things, always downplaying doctrine. Nothing could be further from the truth.
2: It, it seems like what we what we've got going on here is a caricature, both of of who the Pharisees were and who Jesus was. And uh, you you kind of have this uh, this. Uh, this caricature of the Pharisees, and that's used, uh, to manipulate people, to get them to, to be quiet, to, to, to not complain about what you're doing, this sort of thing. What, uh, you've, you've explained the character, caricature. Why do you think it's so effective?
1: Well, it's effective because people, especially Christians, carry around this misconception of who Jesus is and who the Pharisees were. Let's go through the, 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 uh, the misunderstanding. First of who Jesus is, to think that Jesus wasn't concerned about purity of doctrine is absolutely wrong. In fact, Jesus says over and over and over again how important his teachings his doctrine, and abiding in them, holding to them uh, in the great commission, saying, "Teaching everything I have commanded you, how important purity of doctrine is to Jesus. Jesus is all about pure teaching, pure biblical teaching. It it wasn't the Pharisees that were concerned about pure doctrine. In fact, the Pharisees introduced all sorts of new ideas, new methods, new teachings to the ancient faith of God's people in the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus takes them to task for, not for holding to the old ways, which Jesus did. But for introducing new ways, new teachings, new methods.
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic. I mean, you write in the article, and this I think is just, I mean, brilliant. You say Jesus called uh, Christians who demanded doctrinal purity disciples, uh, not Pharisees. Uh, and, and in fact, Jesus warns when he warns about the false teachers, the, the you know these wolves that come in sheep's clothing, uh, he's warning them precisely about the Pharisees because they bring a false doctrine.
1: Exactly. They are they are the teachers, the false. Uh, teachers that Jesus warns us about, that Paul goes on to warn us about, on almost every page of his letters. And Paul's big problem was with the Pharisee party. They were called by that time the Judaizers, but they were Paul's old colleagues because Paul was of the party of the Pharisees. He was, in fact, the brightest light in the Pharisee world in that day. He was a student of Gamaliel, who was the who went down in rabbinic history as one of the greatest uh, Jewish rabbis in the New Testament era. And Paul was, by his own account, surpassing all of his colleagues in the Pharisee business, which means that Paul was, in a sense, if you want to find a modern-day equivalent, Paul was that guy who was out there uh, traveling. His missionary journeys began before he became a Christian. Paul's missionary journeys when he was a Pharisee was to go out and persecute the church. He had missionary zeal for the faith of the Pharisees. And what he found so despicable about Jesus' teaching was that Jesus was calling people to the true Old Testament faith, which was nothing other than recognizing him as the one that God had sent, God's own son. And Jesus wasn't introducing anything new when he came declaring himself to be the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. This was nothing new. Jesus says to the Pharisees themselves, if you listen to Moses, the Old Testament, then you believe in me. I'm not introducing anything new. If you shared the faith that Abraham, your, the guy you claim to have as your father, if you shared that faith with Abraham, you'd believe in me, because Abraham believed in me. The people who were the innovators in the New Testament era were the Pharisees. Everyone knows they introduced all these new rules and regulations for people to keep. They introduced them because, unlike Jesus, who preached the law of God, God's commandments, full force, without compromise, the Pharisees, very much in contrast to what people believe about them, they preached a law that was all softened up. They preached a law that you could manage, that you could keep. And all of these extra rules and regulations that they added on to Scripture's laws were designed to help people keep the law, a law that Jesus came proclaiming as unkeepable, undoable. This is what they hated about Jesus. He was undermining their how-to Version of Judaism.
2: I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that because, I mean, Jesus himself will say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, it, it, so he's putting them in their place, saying, look, they they have this, uh, what you might call righteousness, but yours has to be even more. The law is even stricter. But just a quick word before that, just to kind of finish up a, a thought that you started at the beginning, I, I think because we come at the Pharisees from the New Testament, I mean, seeing Jesus and Paul uh, constantly, and all the apostles really constantly, constantly battling the Pharisees, uh, teaching against them, condemning them. They they are, for us, the villain. Uh, but but I don't think they would have been at the time of Jesus. In other words, could you speak a little bit about this, the social standing of the Pharisees? Uh, how I mean, the Pharisees wouldn't have walked down the street, and people wouldn't have gone and, and hidden from them, uh, tried to avoid talking to them or anything right. like that. Oh, this.
1: no, not at all. They were the Rick Warrens and Bill Hybels, and um, they were uh, the uh, the... To, I mean, to put it bluntly, they were the Joel Osteen of the New Testament era. They were the ones that everyone looked to and flocked to for how to do it. They were the original preachers of the how to sermon. And they were good at it. And contrary to what we had the caricature that we painted of the Pharisees, they were likable. They were probably affable. There's a reason why they were so. Um, their positions were so high in society it wasn't because as you say when they walked down the street everyone said oh there goes another hypocrite Jesus was the first to call them hypocrites and he calls them hypocrites not because that was obvious to everyone who looked at them he called them hypocrites because it wasn't obvious to everyone who looked at them
2: yeah your, your son would have come home and said mom dad I want to be a Pharisee and you would and have you would
1: have... would have said oh my life's ambition is fulfilled <laughs> that's right This is almost as good as my son
2: becoming a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, That's really incredible because, you know, we do have this picture of them, the villain, but they were really the heroes, the celebrities, the ones that everyone looked to. And it was Jesus who was on the outside, and when he comes condemning the Pharisees and and calling them out, he he is bringing things into light that were not in the light before. I mean, he's exposing their wickedness, which was... uh, I mean, that that was their life, is that they had this illusion of their own righteousness that everyone looked up to them and, and wanted to follow them, uh, chased after their doctrine and, and their practice, too.
1: Well, think about it this way. If you ask the average uh, Christian today, who's, who's the example? Who's doing it? Who's really got a handle on the Christian life and how to live a God-pleasing life? There are going to be a whole handful of names that are going to come to mind. I already mentioned a few of them. And that Christian will be convinced that these people really know what Christianity is all about because they seem to be pulling it off. You have this notion, uh, Rick Rick Warren's notion, of uh, a new reformation of deeds, not creeds. He's a version of Christianity that is very manageable. It's all about fulfilling your five purposes. Do that, then you know you can go to bed every night knowing that God is pleased with you. The only problem with Rick Warren's five purposes is it really doesn't require Jesus anywhere in the mix. In fact, he has said that you don't even have to be a Christian to be purpose-driven.
0: Which, which might be why uh, you, you don't find the Pharisee card played by non-Christians but only by Christians because uh, the non-Christians don't have uh, – the the Christian self-righteousness that's going on here.
1: Exactly. there, There are sins that only Christians can commit. I know that sounds kind of odd, but it's true. There are sins that only Christians can commit, and one of them is this notion of Jesus plus my righteousness. You see, the Pharisees of the New Testament didn't have a problem with Jesus as a fellow teacher. In fact, he's routinely referred to by the Pharisees and his other enemies, by the honorific title, rabbi, teacher. Some of them even refer to him as Lord and Master. They had no problem with Jesus if he would, like them, teach a how-to religion, a how-to can-do religion. That was the Pharisees' faith, how-to can-do. The law can be kept. It's really easy. Let us show you how. We're doing it. You can do it too. Does this all sound familiar? And when you put your head on your pillow at night, you will know if you followed our, in their case, 600 some odd rules for living. You can know when you lay your head down on your pillow at night that God is smiling at you. He's your friend. He's pleased with you. They didn't have any problem with faith. But they said things like, well, it takes more than faith to really please God, doesn't it? Yeah, Abraham had faith. They knew the passage, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They knew that passage as well as anyone else. They knew that that passage was there. But what did they teach about Abraham? They taught that Abraham, yeah, he believed God, but it took more than faith to really please God, even for Abraham. So Abraham also had to uh, follow the the uh how-to-can-do rules, too. And that's how they preached the faith of Abraham. They weren't against faith. They just had a problem with faith alone. Jesus came saying, the only passage to eternal life is his personal righteousness. Jesus' personal righteousness, obedience, sacrifice, death, and resurrection. He said things like, No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He came saying things like, Yeah, Pharisees, you're going to see Abraham and all the patriarchs going into the kingdom of God ahead of you because they believed in me. And he said things like, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And this just drove the Pharisees crazy because they had an entire industry and their own personal reputations built on a how-to, can-do religion. And they had managed to tame the law of God, or at least they thought they had, tame the law of God so that they could keep it and others could keep it too. They were very zealous for this. In fact, Jesus, at one point, doesn't criticize them for having no love for the lost. We often think that the Pharisees have no love for the lost. Oh, they love the lost. Jesus says, you will travel all across the face of the earth to make One proselyte for yourself, and then make him twice the son of hell as you are. How did they make them sons of hell? They made them sons of hell by taming the law of God and by preaching this faith plus my own works religion.
2: It's exactly the opposite of of how the Pharisees seen, because we see them as exactly what you've said, lovers of doctrine and and haters of of the lost. The the opposite's true.
1: Yeah, they they were not uh, doctrinal purists. They were doctrinal innovators. Jesus says, you have taken your own rules and substituted them for the word of God. That's called doctrinal innovation. That's called introducing new things, not holding fast to the old stuff. Jesus was the one who advocated doctrinal purity. They advocated doctrinal innovation. They were not, they did not lack zeal in their missionary efforts. What they lacked was a saving message in their mission. They preached a a damning message, faith plus works. And this is why Paul, former Pharisee, spent so much time Basically, repudiating his previous position in the Book of Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, elsewhere, he's repudiating the faith he used to hold. He knows it so well; that's why he's so good at repudiating faith plus works. The reason he's so good at repudiating that that faith plus works doctrine is because that's what he used to believe as a Pharisee. And then Jesus appears to him on the Damascus Road, and he is um, converted. He's baptized, and he realizes that it's faith in Christ plus nothing, and he has to spend the rest of his career withdrawing his previous remarks. Uh,
0: what activities are you uh, engaging, or, or what uh, kind of things are you teaching when you are most often accused of being a Pharisee?
1: Well, if you defend um, purity of doctrine, you you will have the Pharisee card played against you. This happens all the time in the church. If you um if you fight against doctrinal and other kinds of innovations, new teachings, new methods in the church, you will be called a Pharisee. It's, it doesn't stick, but you will be called a Pharisee. And if you are, are, uh, uh, want to see to it that the gospel that is preached is pure, the gospel that, is, that alone saves, about the perfect obedience, the righteous life of Jesus Christ lived for a world of sinners, that that is always kept pure and not mixed with human works or human response or human uh, progress, moral progress, then you'll be called a Pharisee.
2: I'm glad that you've uh, written this article. One of the great things, you, I mean, you've you've totally obliterated the common view of the Pharisees, and you've you've not only just given us uh, how their um, how their uh, intent and um, and desires were uh, uh, were wrong, but you've also given us an outline of the false doctrine that they lessened the law so that they could have a trust in their own righteousness. And and you compared it then, uh, Todd, to um, to the modern, really kind of the purpose-driven, uh, life-benefiting Christianity that we have today, in which you said uh, you uh, you don't need Jesus to be purpose-driven, for example. But there's something, I, I want to see if we can go one step further with that, because you said that uh, we don't need Jesus, but there's something about the doctrine of the Pharisees that goes further and says you can't have Jesus. In other words, it wasn't just enough for them to ostracize Jesus. They had to eventually kill them, uh, ki- kill him, just like uh, the Pharisees did to all the prophets.
1: It is, um, well, it's the nature of false teaching, ultimately, that always, always introduces itself in a very innocuous, seemingly benign, harmless way. Hey, look, we're not calling for a complete renovation of the Christian faith. We just need to reconsider this point or that point. We need to rethink this. Or perhaps, and this is how it's most often sold to Christian congregations nowadays, is this still relevant to the lost, to the unbeliever? (laughs) Why are we still doing this, teaching this, preaching this? Why are we still preaching for that matter at all? It doesn't seem relevant to the lost world. And this is the means by which false teaching And false practice, they always go together by the way, false teaching and false practice enter into the church. You know, the Buddhists, the Muslims, they don't have a problem with false teaching because their teachings are already false. Uh, Jesus never warns the Muslims to watch out for false teaching. He only warns Christians to do it because Christians have the truth and the truth and error cannot coexist together error will always seek to destroy the, the truth and so what happens is the pharisees in jesus day it's not enough to simply discredit jesus they did a pretty good job of doing that it's it's not a matter of trying to tell jesus to go away they did that a lot too go away go away herod's trying to kill you which is it's nice of them to warn him but they just really wanted him out of their hair and Jesus' response is, you go tell that fox, I'm going to be here today, there tomorrow, and if he wants to find me on the third day, he knows where to look. And they, the Pharisees are shaking in their boots, not because they're afraid for Jesus' life, but because they want him out of their hair. In the end, their false teaching requires that Jesus be silenced, because faith and human works are like oil and water. Faith and human works can't coexist together human works must always try to drive out faith alone and that means driving out jesus alone and the reason that jesus is put to death is not because he loved people so much he certainly did love people he was put to death not because he came introducing new ideas to to a marketplace where pharisees had kind of cornered the market. He was put to death because he came proclaiming himself, his obedience, his righteousness as sufficient to save the entire world.
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, the big tirade that Jesus has against the Pharisees is in Matthew 23. And the last, the last one, he says, uh, uh, fill up then the measure of your guilt, the, your father's guilt. This is right around Matthew 23, 32 and following. Serpents, he calls them, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you the prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And and this is the verse I want to ask you about. Uh, Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Uh, there Jesus says that it was, it was the Pharisees, uh, who, who are the cause of every, every martyrdom. Uh, from, from Cain killing Abel all the way through until his own death. Uh, this is stunning, really. What J- Jesus is calling Cain a Pharisee. Yeah,
1: he's, he's saying, and it's back to what, what uh, we had talked about before, Brian. He's, he's not saying that the Pharisees were somehow hiding behind a rock when, when uh, brother slew brother there in the first part of Genesis. What he's saying is the reason that, that one brother killed his other brother, such this famous murder story from Genesis, is ultimately to squash the truth of a righteousness which is by faith alone apart from works what what does paul tell us about cain about the uh about the the sacrifice that abel made it was a sacrifice made in faith cain's wasn't cain could not abide a fa- a, a faith alone he he had to ha- cling to his own human righteousness and for this he killed his brother and jesus is saying this This hatred, this this human righteousness that tries to substitute itself ultimately for the righteousness of God that is given freely by grace solely for Christ's sake is really the reason all of the prophets were persecuted, all of the um, men of God whom God sent generation after generation were killed or persecuted or thrown into prison. It's really what the devil has been trying to squash from the very beginning. And this is why he, without even blinking, will tell the Pharisees and his other enemies, your father is not God. Your father is the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. He's always been telling lies. And the lies that you tell, this lie that human righteousness can avail before a holy and righteous God, this lie has been the source of all the bloodshed that has been committed in the name of God from the beginning on. And when he says fill up the the measure, and all the blood. He's not talking about the further persecution of the church, first and foremost. He's talking about his own crucifixion. He's inviting the Pharisees at that point to kill him. He's saying, do it. Go for it. Do what you do. I come here as a preacher of my life, obedience, and righteousness, sacrifice at the cross as sufficient to save the world, can't take that. You want to inject human works into it. We both know where this is headed. Do it. Crucify me. And you'll notice another thing early in that passage that you read, Brian. Jesus says, I send to you the prophets. The Pharisees had to notice this, that he used the first person singular pronoun. He's not quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting himself. He's saying, I'm the one who sent Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of the prophets that suffered persecution. I'm the one who sent them to you, and I'm going to send you more. And after you kill me and I've risen again, I'm going to send you more, and you're going to kill them too. It's going to go on this way because, as I said before, Jesus alone for a world of sinners, this teaching can't peacefully coexist. With the teaching of human works and human righteousness, and all we have in the in the church today that fights against the truth and the purity of God's word and of the gospel is, if you boil it down, an attempt to put human works back into the equation, and an attempt to teach that it requires faith plus human works, or maybe just human works alone, to really please God. And Jesus came saying, "Look." On this whole issue of of pleasing God, I've got that taken care of. I've got the pleasing God part taken care of. Believe in me. Believe in the one who sent me. And he says radical things like, if a man believes in me, he won't die. If a man believes in me, he'll have eternal life. If a man believes in me, he will pass, pass judgment He will go past judgment and not suffer the consequences for his sins. Pharisees couldn't take this because their stock was tied up. All of their capital was tied up in human righteousness and human works. And nothing's really changed here, guys. Nothing has changed. The Pharisees are still among us in the sense that they were in the New Testament. Everything that injects human works and human righteousness into faith alone or att- attempts to do it is again the teaching of the Pharisees and even though they don't wear long robes and phylacteries and tassels and they don't stand on the street corners praying for men to see them, they still speak the same false teaching. their prayers all sound the same. Go into any pop American evangelical church today and Listen to what you'll hear in the songs, in the preaching, in the prayers. It's very subtle, but it's unmistakable. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I tithe this, I give that, I do this, I do that. I'm pulling it off. I'm not like this person over there, beating his breast, so defeated, not living the victorious Christian life. He hasn't even begun to fulfill his five purposes. He, he's not a contagious Christian like me. Poor, poor sap there beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I just thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Thank you so much for making me better than I was yesterday, a little bit better. And tomorrow you make me a little bit better. And Jesus says of this kind of prayer, this kind of song, this kind of preaching, this kind of how to can do false christianity he says that doesn't justify the one who went up to his house justified the man who would not raise his eyes to heaven but said let the blood this is what the word means have mercy on me let the blood avail for me the sinner the one who trusts in the blood the shed blood of jesus christ alone who looks at himself and finds No progress. Who looks at himself and says, there's nothing here that I can lay before God that can please him. Who looks and says, if I am going to do anything but be judged and condemned before a holy and righteous God, if I'm going to survive God's judgment, it will have to be because someone has shed their blood for me. And it won't be because I'm not like the other guy. Or I've done this, or I've done that, or I found out how to, and I did it.
2: Yeah, that's, we we all come like the sinner, begging the Lord's mercy and praising Him for the sacrifice of of Christ. There's nothing uh, that we can bring uh, ourselves. That's wonderful. Thank you, uh, thank you, Pastor Wilkin, for for writing this article, for everything that you've uh, done and uh, and hope to do on on issues, etc., too, and we really appreciate your time. If you have a couple more minutes, uh, I wanted to play. We on Table Talk Radio, we, Evan and I like to play uh, games with each other, and I have one for you. Are, are you ready? Are you? Uh, I guess I am. you up for it? All right, this, this game is called uh, Name That Theologian, and the way it works is I'll, I'll give you uh, three quotations. From a world famous theologian, you you know him well, and you try to guess who said them. Uh, uh, if you get, I think we divvy out points too. Uh, if you can guess it straight out, you get two hundred points. If I give you a A B C list, you get a hundred points there. So so we'll just we'll do one theologian. Well,
1: now you're
2: just confusing me. Oh, don't worry. Just uh, just listen closely. You'll, you'll I hope you recognize these. Ready? Here here's quotation he, number one. He doesn't one. pick
0: hard ones, Todd.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, postmodernists believe. That words don't have objective, absolute meanings. So we need to rewrite Webster's dictionary with a list of words and the phrase "you fill in the blank" next to each word. That's your first quotation. You're going to have two more quotations by this same theologian.
1: Okay. So 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 far, I have not a clue.
2: Okay. Well, it'll, I've it'll, got a
1: guess, but no clue.
2: It'll come to you. Here, you got two more. Uh, this is a question. Why do so many evangelicals interpret the book of Revelation literally, but when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, they believe Jesus is speaking figuratively?
1: Okay, I'm getting closer. I'm beginning to feel a warming warming (laughs) sensation. Uh, I I think there's a burning in the bosom.
2: Uh, (laughs) Watch out. it's someone close by. Do you get ready to douse this guy in case he catches on fire? Uh, third, I think pastors should have to renew their ordination vows annually in front of the congregation. I think many pastors have conveniently forgotten these vows for the sake of, quote, peace and, quote, unity.
1: Ooh. Is there like a little ticking clock thing going on here? Uh,
2: no. Uh, we could sing the Jeopardy thing, but we have that for another game we play.
1: Well, um, okay. The, what, what, I, what I sensed a moment ago is the, the warming sensation. The the thermal action um, has now become a a full-blown fire, (laughs) and uh, I think I think I know uh, who this might be. Uh, Is it yours truly?
2: Uh, (laughs) Close, (laughs) but no, no cigar. Someone who often sits close to you, and so he probably heard you say these things and wrote them down and took credit.
1: You know, great minds think alike. <laughs> and um and uh I will tell you why I probably mistook that great, great lay theologian for myself. <laughs> and people don't often realize this, that uh the uh the uh, powerhouse behind issues, etc., um, is is not its host but its producer. And many of the 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 things that I have said on the air over the last ten years and hope to say for another ten years to come on the air, were uh, actually appeared to me in ethereal form before my eyes as we were doing the show on my computer monitor, and they were typed there by Jeff Shores.
2: That's it. That's the one. Bing, Bing, Bing. Jeff Shores.
1: I think you were actually quoting from his producer's page.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: See, I didn't. Uh, I don't pay attention when I edit. When I edited the issues, et cetera, journal, I didn't pay too close attention, as Jeff will <laughs> readily tell you. So I probably didn't even read the article. But uh, you know what we do is we cross-pollinate. We have, we have both said these things so many times to one another and to others that uh, you tend to forget where he begins and where wilkin where where he ends and Wilkin begins.
2: That's part of the magic of issues, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I pref- I prefer to think of it as voodoo. But
2: <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what. You got it the second guess, you got it right. I think the um uh the, the prize that you'll win will uh will have you back on Table Talk Radio sometime and uh, and do this again.
1: You know, you ought to have Jeff on.
2: Yeah, that's a good idea. Really? Yeah, we should.
1: I'm 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 not kidding. People only knew that he could do the show by himself.
0: <laughs> You'd be out of a job.
1: <laughs> it's it's a secret that I that I've tried to keep for, for a decade now, that I am completely superfluous to the whole process.
2: The secret's out now. And plus the secret is that, that Issues Etc. will only be on for ten more years. You said another ten years. Uh, well, I don't plan uh, but There's a There's that. a scoop.
1: I don't plan to live much longer than
0: that. <laughs> well, Pastor Rofner, uh, should you tell people where you get all your inspiration then, too? I mean, since we're having a... <laughs> Evan Gagline, everyone, Evan Gagline. I have no thoughts apart from him. You know, I
1: like this, I, but I like this. Because um, people often say, um, has being a radio talk show host and doing theology day in, day out, out made you a better theologian? And I've often said, yes, it's it's like going to the seminary again every day, except better, because I don't have to – I get paid to do it, and I don't have to pay for doing it.
0: I should look into that.
1: But but the real truth here is there's actually a scriptural truth at work, and this not only applies to the relationship between – uh, wolf miller and gagline or between wilkin and shores uh, in my case it was really not just wilkin and shores it was wilkin and his audience and wilkin and his guests scripture says that man sharpens man like iron sharpens iron it is it's about um what luther would have called the mutual consolation of the brothers but when god's word is at work between christian brothers and sisters it makes everybody better theologians. God's word actually produces the theologian. Luther says it's God's word, it's prayer, and it's suffering makes the theologian. And when we have that combination going, everybody becomes better theologians. And I think that's what the genius of, of issues, etc., has been all this time: is that people say, "I loved listening to it." They say. I liked the show, these kind of things we we hear so often. Um, In its absence, people have said, I feel like I'm going through withdrawal. They're not feeling the withdrawal of a radio program. They're feeling the withdrawal of that daily nourishment of God's word that came through the radio program. And I I, I want people to understand, as happy as I am to be able to, along with these Herculean efforts of Jeff Schwarz, bring the show back, I want people to understand that it's it's just a radio show. Uh, the, where God really does his work is every Lord's Day in that quiet little building that you attend where the pastor does nothing more than open his mouth and preach God's word of law and gospel, proclaim Christ and him crucified for sinners, where he feeds you with the body and blood of Jesus, where he baptizes your babies, where he proclaims to you again and again the forgiveness of sins that is yours, uh, in in Christ Jesus, that's where God's really doing His work. Radio shows are luxuries. Even table talk <laughs> are luxuries.
2: It could be perhaps a burden. I, I luxury might be too kind of a well, word. For the church, they,
1: they are a luxury, and they but they're they're they and they're necessary, but but the real nourishment of God's word uh, is is where God does His thing on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day where Christ is proclaimed. And all of the other media, all the other talk, all the other broadcasts, radio, Internet, all of those things are good, they're helpful, but they're really just piggybacking on what faithful, anonymous pastors are doing week in, week out. And... What faithful parishioners and people and laity are hearing and participating in week in and week out—that's all we're really doing—is just going along for the ride.
2: Yeah, the Lord always works in humility and in uh, and in secret, really, in a hidden way, through the humble word and through His humble sacraments. And I can it's...
1: guarantee you that I'm, when 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 I'm standing next to Rick Warren for the heavenly rewards, that's where I plan to be on that day. I'm going to sidle up alongside Rick Warren. <laughs> For the reward ceremony, you know, I'd like to thank the academy, kind of a thing, um, on on the last day. The the the, the crowns, the uh, the the crowns of eternal life that Christ will be giving out freely on that on that great and marvelous day, will be going to little old ladies who sat in the back of the church and no one ever noticed them. But they faithfully served as companions to their husbands. They raised their children. They taught their children the Christian faith. They may have done a thing or two at church. It may have been bringing food to someone who was in the hospital or helping take care of somebody's kids during church. The crowns are going to go to these little old ladies that no one ever noticed. And the crowns are going to go to the men who faithfully drove their trucks week in, week out, put food on the table for their kids, made sure that after working six days a week behind the wheel, they got back behind the wheel on Sunday morning of their own car to drag their kids to church so that they could hear about Jesus. And it's going to go to these pastors who faithfully have labored in the vineyards and faithfully withstood the the trials and the temptations and the assaults of the devil, and um, and the people that you expect to get the to get the great rewards um, will certainly get the crowns of righteousness freely given by Christ, but the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. Jesus makes that pretty clear, and I make it my goal in in life. Try and if I can, in spite of my pride, my ego, to get as far back in the line as I can. Because Jesus says the first are gonna be last and the last are gonna be first.
2: Yeah, that's great. I, and it brings us back perhaps to the to close with the topic at hand. I, I mean our native religion, our flesh and the devil and the world are f- we're, we're, we're Pharisees All of us are We want the, we want the first place we want the, um, we want the accolades of those around us We want to be acknowledged by the people who see us We want to be uh, able to have people uh, laud us And congratulate us for all the good works that we've done And they've seen and all of this sort of thing But Jesus tells us uh, his, his teaching and uh, his church give us something different It's not, it's not ourselves at all uh, it's what he's done. We're
1: natural-born Pharisees, Brian. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: All of us. It's it's built into us by our human by our human and fallen nature, and Christ has come to drag us out of the mire and the muck of our own righteousness, alleged righteousness and works, and bring us up to His righteousness. Give it to us freely. Wash us clean with the water of baptism. Feed us on a weekly basis with His body and blood. Sustain us with his word that forgives sins and eventually deliver us to His Father, um, as, as mission accomplished. He is, He's the one carrying out the mission of the church. He's the one doing it. And, and He, He came n- into this world to, to be the sacrifice for sins, knowing full well that the Pharisees weren't just a group of bearded men in Palestine. But it was me, it was you, it was even Evan.
0: Yeah, include him. Thanks.
1: (laughs) It was everyone listening to us, everyone who will listen to this. He came for a world of Pharisees, people who would, given the opportunity, would have and would crucify him all over again with our eyes wide open. And he came and said, in spite of the, the hostility that this world will bring upon me, um, these are sinners for whom I must die. And so, Scripture tells us there in that pivotal moment in one of the Gospels, he set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. It wasn't the first time he'd set his face toward Jerusalem. He's, Jesus has had his face set toward Jerusalem from before the foundation of the world. And he knew full well what he was getting into. He was going into Pharisee land, Pharisee planet, and he was going to save them. And he was going to do what must be done, which was perfect obedience, the kind of obedience that the Pharisees could only dream about in their wildest dreams, perfect obedience, a perfect life, and a perfect sacrifice, a perfect death, and his resurrection.
0: Amen. Todd, I want to thank you again for being with us for Table Scraps. It was a great pleasure.
1: Thank you very much, Evan, and Brian, thank you as well.
0: Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you uh, to everyone listening uh, to Table Scraps, whether on the Internet at tabletalkradio.org or on uh, our Skypecast Live. Uh, if you have any questions about Table Talk Radio, please send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org, or call us on our toll-free number, 866-851-5523. See you again next time on Table Scraps.
1: Would you like to join the Table Talk Radio discussion? Now you can through our Skypecasts. Using Skype, you can listen to the live recordings of Table Talk Radio and call in with your
2: comments or questions. For more information, visit the Skypecasts page of our website, tabletalkradio.org.